Hello, and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Justin Quirk. The lives that ordinary people live every day in America are made possible by armies of workers who carry out the jobs that we don't like to think about and we certainly don't want to see. From drone pilots and prison guards to the undocumented migrants who man industrial slaughterhouses, these are the people who carry out society's most ethically troubling jobs. Dirty Work by Ale Press is a remarkable new book which travels deep into this world and reveals it in unflinching detail. He joins me today in the bunker. Welcome to the bunker, Ale. Thank you so much. This is a book about a hidden world which underpins much of our economy in the West. Um, The whole point of what you term dirty work is that it's hidden away and we don't normally engage with it. So what first made you aware of it? Uh, You know, I'd done a lot of reporting on the prison system in the United States. And um, that is, as uh, your listeners probably know, the largest prison system in the entire world. Um, But it is a system that is pretty much hidden from view. Very few Americans who don't have uh, either direct experience being incarcerated or family members who have been incarcerated ever actually set foot in a prison or even see one. And I got particularly interested in this hidden world through the story, uh, which actually opens Dirty Work, my book, of um, some, some awful abuses that took place in a prison that was just 50 miles south of Miami. Um, and again, the juxtaposition was so stark. It's, I, as a reporter, was staying you know, on South Beach, um, seeing all the tourists and the revelers, uh, and then driving less than an hour to get to this uh, tucked away prison where abuses on the scale of what took place at Abu Ghraib in Iraq uh, were taking place. So it's that, it's that juxtaposition that really struck me and, and, and really pulled me in, I think, as a, as a reporter. That opening chapter, I mean, that's a particularly hard read, I mean, without spoiling sort of the subject matter. Um, what surprised or shocked you the most from those stories you went through? Was that the hardest part of the book you dealt with, or were there other things that you weren't expecting when you went into this process? I think there were unexpected things throughout, but just to begin with that, uh, you know, the, the prison system, so people know it's about criminal justice. It's about punishment. And, and, and that's generally how people think of jails and prisons in America. But I approach it from a slightly different angle because the prison system in America is also a de facto mental health system. The largest mental health institutions in the United States are not hospitals, they are not community health centers, they are jails and prisons where essentially a lot of poor people and people of color are warehoused, uh, people who have mental illnesses who cannot get access to treatment in their communities because they they can't afford it, uh, the services aren't there. And that's where it, it, to me, fits the prism of, of dirty work. I wanted to look at so who are the mental health aides who work in these facilities? What kinds of treatment is actually possible to give in the context of a violent, crowded prison? And what I discovered was, was indeed shocking because the mental health aide that I write about, a woman named Harriet Kraskovsky, uh, learns of these abuses that are going on but she feels bound to silence. She feels she can't say anything about it. And this is, of course, uh, very typical. It's a predicament that all these mental health aides have. And why can't she say anything? Because if she says something, it's, it, was the, it was the guards at the prison who were doing the abuse. Um, 
you know, she's beholden to those guards for her own safety and security to do her work. So uh, that first chapter, which is called Dual Loyalty, kind of gets into these incredible moral conflicts that, that Harriet experiences that end up actually traumatizing her, not just uh, the people in her care. And what were the hardest places to access in terms of the book? I mean, you go through, obviously, facilities like that. You go through slaughterhouses. You go through, you know, the inner workings of places like Google, the military. Um, what was sort of the hardest nut to crack? It's really it's really interesting and ironic. Um, I, I have mentioned prisons, and there's also a section of the book on the drone program where I visit drone bases and write about this incredibly secretive military program. Uh, the folks I talk to aren't allowed to disclose any operational details. And yet, prisons and drone bases were not the hardest places to access when I wrote this book. The hardest places to access turned out to be commercial spaces where what I call dirty work takes place. In particular, uh, you mentioned industrial slaughterhouses. I tried to visit them. I couldn't get in. The particular company I wrote about, Sanderson Farms, it's a poultry company, one of the largest poultry companies in the world. Um, And it had a PR campaign called Missions in Transparency. Um, I couldn't get through the doors uh, once and, you know, repeated pleading. Um, And that tells you something about how little companies like Sanderson Farms actually want what's going on to be transparent, uh, how sort of meat is processed and and with the treatment of both the animals and the workers uh, in the United States. The other place that was really hard to get to was the tech world. The non-disclosure agreements in the tech world are so ubiquitous. These are agreements that, that employees have to sign and they legally bind them not to talk about things. And that proved very difficult to get around. And I was really struck by the irony of that. I mean, there's obviously a long tradition of writers exposing the socioeconomic underbelly of the system. And you mentioned in the book, you know, Charles Dickens, yeah, you know, hundreds of years ago, wrote about the American prison system when he was visiting the country. Given that long history, do you think that this kind of material is a feature, not a bug of capitalism? You know, will there just always be a certain number of economic losers working these jobs at the bottom of the pile? Or can things improve? Did you see any sort of evidence of hope for change there? I do think it's it's a feature of capitalism. It's maybe a feature of, of all societies. I don't think we would have had trouble finding examples of dirty work in, in the former Eastern Bloc or Soviet Union either. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think it I think dirty work as as I argue in the book, it's organized in terms of power. The book begins with a quote from James Baldwin. The powerless must do their own dirty work. The powerful have it done for them. That's mm. the quote. And and that's really true in the United States today. You know, when you look at an industrial slaughterhouse, what you find is undocumented immigrants and refugees who are working on the kill floors. Uh, when you go into the prison system, you don't find elite you know, college graduates, people with uh, education, advanced degrees. Uh, what you find are, in many, in many cases, people from the very same communities that are suffering the effects of mass incarceration. Um, so it's it's organized by inequality, by power, by disparities in wealth. Uh, the people with the fewest choices and opportunities are the ones who end up working and doing society's dirty work. And I guess in terms of the literature you you described, that that literature, you know, inspired me, and I, I cite it 
throughout the, the book, Dickens, Upton Sinclair, Orwell, these are all people who wrote about the worlds that I engage. The one difference in my book is that I'm looking at the people who work in these places rather than, you know, the the, the more familiar victims, uh, which would be like in prisons, it would be the prisoners. Uh, but I'm looking at the people who work in that system because I think that through them we get we get a really unique window into just what's wrong with these with these places. And in regard to those workers, we're familiar broadly in society with the idea now of PTSD. But you write about how a more complex but more relevant condition in terms of the workplace may be that of what you term moral injury. Um, Can you explain a bit about what you mean by that concept? Yeah, moral injury is this term that's really gained uh, currency in the United States as a consequence of America's never-ending wars and, you know, soldiers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And a lot of them didn't actually identify with PTSD. They said, you know, something's bothering me. But I don't have this kind of brain injury from, you know, having survived a near-death experience or this, this PTSD is really a fear response. It's about, you know, other people who threaten you. Um, moral injury is this very different term. And it's really about the things you saw or did that, you know, uh, transgressed your core values. So if a soldier was at a juncture in a road, and a car stopped and he thought it was, you know, uh, an enemy combatant and someone opened fire and it turned out it was a family just trying to cross the road. So many things like that happened in America's recent wars and soldiers bore witness and, and, and sometimes took part in these acts. So that term, which is, is sort of gaining currency in the military, is it, I take it and look at, you know, the prison system. Where, as I said, you know, a woman like Harriet Kraskowski, this mental health aide, uh, she, her hair fell out. She lost her appetite when she was working at this prison. And at first she thought, oh, you know, it's a diet deficiency. It's an iron deficiency, maybe. Now she realizes she was so distraught by what she was seeing, the abuses she was seeing and not talking about, that she manifested these kind of physical symptoms. And she very much identifies with this term moral injury. And I think that so many, you know, all of the jobs actually I look at, you you have people doing the work who routinely have to either, you know, avert their eyes from what they're seeing, or just um, harden themselves to it, which of course a lot of prison guards do. Um, but uh, either way, it takes a toll, and that emotional and and ethical toll is really at the center of this book. And looking at the big picture, there, how do you think that kind of damage that we inflict on a workforce ends up shaping and feeding back into society as a whole? You know, does does the war always come home in some way? Definitely. I mean, I cite at one point you know, the occupational health literature on on prison guards. One study found life expectancy 58 years. Uh, another, you know, just a very high rate of suicide, of substance abuse, of hypertension, of divorce. You know, you, you don't exist in these worlds without being changed by them as one. And as one guard said to me, you know, when a good man or woman works in a prison, some of that goodness wears off. So I do think that, you know, cumulatively, it, 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 affect, it affects society. There's a, there's a quote from Rebecca Solnit uh, about my book where, where I think she aptly says, you know, it's the, it's the workers who experience these moral injuries, but they belong to all of us. 
And I think that's true because I think it, it shapes the kind of society the United States is. And with that idea of sort of public culpability, you talk about <clears throat> in regard to the military chapters, you talk about one of the factors pushing, say, the use of drones was that the public at large had effectively had enough of the war on terror, but didn't actually want constraint placing on the military. Was that a recurring idea through these chapters that essentially a lot of these things are the way they are because we as a public sort of want it this way? Absolutely. Uh, The inspiration for the book was this essay I I came across by a sociologist named Everett Hughes, and it's called Good People and Dirty Work. And the core idea there is that these two things are not separate. What what he calls good people, uh, upstanding citizens, um, often delegate society's dirty work to what he calls agents, you know, but then don't want to hear too much about it. And Hughes had this wonderful phrase for, for the relationship. He said, you know, maybe this work has, has an unconscious mandate from the good people. Uh, and I think that's true. I think that's very true of the drone program in the United States. You know, it, it came about after these, you know, tumultuous debates about Guantanamo and, you know, the black site prisons during the Bush era. And a lot of liberals in particular were up in arms about these, these places. They felt, you know, sullied by, by what was going on, and, and maybe rightly so. But then notably, uh, Barack Obama comes in, and what does he do? Well, he shuts down the black sites, but he expands the drone wars uh, by a very significant amount. Uh, drone strikes increase a hundredfold. Um, and so what you see there, I think, is you know a form of warfare that is hidden, that is tucked away. We don't see the images, uh, but it, I do think it has what what you know Hughes called an unconscious mandate from much of society. You know, we don't want to hear about it. Let someone else do it, and and we won't ask too many questions about it. You mentioned there the that era of you know the first part of the war on terror and the black sites and torture prisons. Um, I'm going to choose my words very carefully here, but when you write about people like the guards who worked in Abu Ghraib, you don't excuse them, but you do explain how they ended up in a situation where making those choices seemed logical to them. Um, Firstly, was that a challenge as a writer to walk that line? And were you secondly surprised at how you came to view them as people? Yes, um, I think it was a a very challenging line because I did feel particularly with, say, some of the prison guards I interviewed, uh, this impulse to judge. You know, if someone is carrying out or, or just turning a blind eye to abuse, um, they do share a responsibility for that. Um, on the other hand, I, the book is situating these acts of abuse in context. And what I note over and over again is that just as, as was the case at Abu Ghraib, the people who were singled out for blame were the really low-ranking reservists, you know, mm-hmm. Charles Grainer, Lindy England. Not a single senior U.S. official was held accountable for Abu Ghraib. Um, and that's also true in prisons. I, I note cases where you had a couple of guards who would be, you know, fired or removed from the prison. And then the assistant warden is promoted to warden or the warden becomes, you know, a regional warden. Uh, that tells you something about how accountability works within these systems. And furthermore, um, all of the people working in the system are doing so 
because of decisions that were made by politicians, by elected officials, and in turn by voters and ordinary Americans. So it's not so easy to just limit the blame to those folks at the bottom. And that's kind of the the journey of discovery I made in the book to try to kind of widen that lens. I mean, I was amazed reading, particularly with regards to the chapters on the military, the extent to which recruitment is driven by economic necessity. And, you know, they were saying the the casualty levels in, you know, the poorest communities in America for the military are, you know, multiples higher than they are in more wealthy areas. I mean, do you still have a kind of freestanding army in America or is it a kind of draft by circumstance now? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, effectively we have a system that's not so different from what existed, you know, in the, in the 19th century in America where wealthy people literally could pay poor people to fight for them. Um, we don't quite say that. We don't do that. But we have this, quote unquote, volunteer army where disproportionately, you know, who's going to go to the military? It's people who don't have other opportunities to, you know, travel, get uh, a job, get uh, some educational credentials and some skills. I quote people during the Iraq war who, you know, representatives of of uh, communities of, of color and black communities in the United States who are saying, you know, look, it's my community that's going to fight this war. We need to have a, a real debate about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that is definitely what has played out in the United States. You, I call, I call the military the other 1%. Um, and it's not the wealthy elite 1%. It's more, as you say, you know, working class, lower opportunities. Of course, that's where you see a lot of, you know, patriotic displays and flags on Veterans Day, but it's it's no mystery. I mean, th- th- these are the communities the military is drawing upon. And especially in, I mean, especially in America as a whole, but especially in those communities, the idea of meritocracy and the power of hard work still holds enormous sway. Um, how much do you think that further harms those workers who end up in these jobs at the bottom of the pile, though, that the so much of the national conversation... And the national ideology is still framed around those ideas that, you know, you can work hard and get ahead. I think it, it's very damaging. Um, you know, I think it breeds a lot of resentment. And if you want to understand the dynamics in America uh, right now on, in terms of the, the larger drift of, of the working class away from the Democratic Party, I think that um, a lot of that has to do with resentment of a meritocratic system in which they're not getting ahead. And, and the folks who feel stuck and trapped and are seeing their wages sort of stagnate or decline are looking at the system and saying, this isn't working for me. Why should I believe in it? And um, I do think that's pretty central to the tensions in America right now. And in those chapters, you're particularly scathing about people who might be expected to be allies of these kind of workers who've been you know, marginalized, exploited, but people who instead of frequently ended up attacking them. So, I mean, in that chapter, it's, you know, environmentalists who focus on damage to animals in the ecosystem, but not the workers who are killed when things like oil platforms explode. Um, would you have any suggestions for like, how can progressives reframe that discussion? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, and, and I should say, I, I, I sympathize with with the environmental critics, I'm, I'm by no means excusing the fossil fuel industry or for that matter, the industrial food system, which is, mm-hmm. you know, enormously uh, has an enormous impact on uh, climate. But um, I think what gets lost too often are the workers in these worlds. And, you know, I think distinctions need to be made. And 
a sense of class dynamics needs to be brought into it. You know, as, as you mentioned, this I, I talk about the Deepwater Horizon spill and, you know, a lot of workers died and got injured in that spill. And yet when congressional hearings were held, the pictures that were held up of the victims of this blast were pelicans and dolphins. And that was understandable on one level, but it was also painful for the widows of these workers who were at the hearings. Um, It just sent the message, you know, our lives don't matter. And maybe our lives are seen as dirty. Mm. It does require people who, you know, have progressive views on some of these matters to think about the workers who get caught in the system, whether it's the prison system or the industrial food system or uh, the fossil fuel industry. Moving into the future, in the later parts of the book, say you talk about, you know, military drone pilots, software engineers at places like Google, while we're transitioning into a post-industrial future, this new digital world seems to be replicating a lot of the inequalities and damages of the old system. Is this period going to be seen as a missed opportunity or are there still things that can be done at this stage? I think it's a really interesting question and and I think that the, the jury's still out on it. Um, what's clearly happened in the last you know five, ten years is this kind of you know utopian, picture of Silicon Valley as this place that will just make the world a better place in in Google's promotional phrase. Um, Nobody buys that anymore. Um, Everybody is pretty aware at this point that this is going to raise the same dark ethical questions that other industries have. Um, And I do think, unfortunately, we're replicating some of the divisions of labor um, when, you know, you have, on the one hand, just inordinate, you know, wealth and billionaires and, you know, the story of 20-year-olds and startups sometimes on false premises becoming multi-billionaires. And then on the other side of it, you have, you know, the content managers who sit at cubicles and and look at um, disturbing images and uh, are are not in on that wealth. Uh, So I I do think that um, technology alone doesn't clean this work. Um, the conditions of the work are what we have to think about. And again, the, the power disparities. And on, on a more positive note, I mean, were there any hopeful stories you found? I mean, there's one you mentioned in the book, um, Steve Leafman's work with psychiatric patients, which diverted thousands of people away from the US prison system, had a recidivism rate of just 6%. Were there any other stories like that that you came across where you thought, actually, maybe there are ways we can crack some of these problems? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um, the way to crack them, the first step is just exposure. And as I, I note towards the end of the book, um, even though I'm writing about these hidden worlds, what's hopeful is that consciousness of the troubles that are hidden uh, has really risen quite uh, dramatically in the United States. So, you know, the term mass incarceration wasn't even used very much in the media and certainly not as a, as a troubling thing. Uh, up until about 10 years ago. And and now you have in America, both on the right and left, uh, a consensus emerging that the prison system here has just gotten way out of control. Um, and likewise with the food system. I mean, there are things that, that Americans uh, tolerate in their industrial food system that Europeans don't, you know, less inspections, less regulation, and so forth. But American consumers are very 
aware and have become increasingly aware of, you know, they look for labels of food that doesn't have certain you know, chemicals and hormones and so forth. So that suggests that rising consciousness can alter how this work is seen and, and maybe also change the conditions it's done under. Uh, and I do think that's hopeful. Uh, you mentioned there, obviously, the thing about food production. I should say the chapter on slaughterhouses is a, is a particularly eye-opening read, probably best avoided around uh, any meal times amongst readers. <laughs> um, have you changed your own eating habits since writing that? Yes. Um, <laughs> I stopped eating chicken uh, when, I, when I was reporting the stories of, of the workers in the poultry slaughterhouse because they were so wrenching. Now, I should say, in the end, what I ended up doing is deciding I just have to eat a lot less meat. I have to, you know, if I have choices, I have to make the choice to, to eat something you know, vegetarian or, or fish rather than contribute to that system. But I should say, I don't think these individual choices, they're healthy to think about, but I don't think they are the solution. I think the, the solution lies in sort of collectively changing these conditions. Ale, thank you so much for joining me on The Bunker. Dirty Work is out now, published by Head of Zeus in All Good Bookshops. Thank you so much for having me on. Listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp? You can also back the bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Bunker is presented by Justin Quirk. Produced by Yelena Sofronayevich and Jacob Archbold. Andrew Harrison is proof editor. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. And audio production came from me, Robin Lever. Theme music's from Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.